Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles. Put one finger uh, in, in Matthew chapter 2. And uh, that's, that's one perspective that we're going to be looking at today. That's, that's the human perspective. Uh, but here's what I want you to do, and this is maybe a little bit of a surprise, but I didn't want to have two different scripture readings today. But there's actually a parallel passage to this in the book of Revelation. Uh, turn to Revelation with an, and put another finger in Revelation chapter 12. And we'll be kind of going back and forth between these two, uh, these two books, these two um, writings. Uh, in my generation, we don't really subscribe to newspapers anymore. Um, anybody in, in my generation here subscribe to newspapers? Or do you just get it online? I, I, I just get it online. Um, call me cheap or whatever, but all the news that, that I want, uh, I know that I can, I can find it online. So I, I don't subscribe to newspapers, but I have the age-old tradition of first thing in the morning, what I want to do is get my coffee, and then I want to read the news. So, uh, you know, I, I get online, and I, I read news, I read blogs, I read all kinds of stuff first thing in the morning, and that's just kind of my daily routine. And so today, um, and this fits perfectly with what we're going to be covering today, today the headline is, the Iraq War is over. Today, today, the last of our troops are coming home. Uh, that's got to be one of the top stories of this year, undoubtedly, uh, the withdrawal of American troops from Iraq. We probably all remember that that was one of the things that our, uh, that our current president had vowed to do when he was running for office, and this year uh, it's become official as thousands and thousands of our troops who were stationed in Iraq uh, have been coming home after a long and, uh, and difficult occupation over there in Iraq. Uh, of course, in 2003, the United States invaded Iraq, and I'm not going to address some of the conspiracy theories or alternative theories about what we were doing over there, why we went in there. The official reason for the invasion of Iraq was uh, there was a reasonable suspicion that they were hiding weapons of mass destruction. In addition, they, uh, they, were, they seemed to be harboring and funding terrorist organizations. Uh, of course, the mistake that we made in going in was going in without a strategy for going out. There was really no game plan for how this was going to end. Uh, in 2007, while President Bush was still in office, um, Congress had, uh, had passed a bill that would have our, trip, our, our troops begin the withdrawal, but President Bush vetoed it immediately, and in 2008, a bill was signed that mandated the completion of the withdrawal of our troops to be uh, December 31st, which is, you know, a couple weeks away, uh, two weeks from, from yesterday, uh, but it is, uh, it's happening today. The official date is December 31st. Uh, now, of course, American troops will continue to occupy Afghanistan, which is another country that was, without a doubt, harboring terrorist organizations, uh, that, that's where they were doing a lot of their training, most of their training. So we invaded Afghanistan a few weeks after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 in, uh, in 2001. Now the point that I'm, I'm trying to make here is simply to point out that America sent its forces overseas to invade these countries as part of the war on terrorism as a means of showing that we take terrorism really seriously. It's not something that we're, we're you know, half-hearted about. It's not something that we're going to joke around about. We mean business. And that's why we went over there. Uh, what good would it have been to say, you know, hey, we're, we're declaring a war on terrorism, and meanwhile, we're, we're letting it happen around the world, and we're letting, it happen, we're letting them train around the world to come here and carry out these actions. Uh, that would be an indication that we, we just don't care, right? That, that would show that, you know, we're not really taking it all that seriously. 
um, the war on terrorism wouldn't be something that we could really say that we were serious about. But the fact is that we went halfway around the world to invade these countries that were harboring and funding terrorist organizations because we take terrorism seriously and we don't back down from it. And so we went there. Now, what we're going to see today is that Christmas is heaven's declaration of an all-out war as well on sin, on evil, on the kingdom of darkness. Christmas tells us that when it comes to sin and when it comes to evil, heaven's not messing around. It's not something that they take half-heartedly, that heaven takes half-heartedly. It's something that God takes really, really seriously, extremely seriously. Now, as we enter the Christmas season, and uh, you know, I've been trying to think, okay, what are some of the Christmas sermons that I've heard throughout the years? Uh, you know, trying to think back, okay, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm sure that I've heard sermons on Mary's perspective more than once. I've heard sermons from Mary's perspective. I remember one where, uh, you know, my, my pastor dressed up as Joseph and gave a fir- what's called a first-person sermon, where he gave it from, from Joseph's perspective, to, uh, gave a sermon from Joseph's perspective, talking about Jesus being born. Um, I've heard sermons, uh, you know, from the perspective of the wise men. Uh, I, I think, and I was tra- talking with Christina th- this week, uh, I think that when I was a kid, the pastor of the church that I was going to dressed up like an animal, like a camel, and, and gave a sermon uh, from the camel's perspective. I, I'm not sure, but, uh, but I think I, I've, I've heard sermons from all of these perspectives. So there you have it. Now you know what every year when, it, when Christmas rolls around, now you know what I'm going to be preaching on, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm not going to be dressing up like a camel. Thank you very much. Um, but I have to ask, when you look at all these perspectives, what is missing? What's missing from, from this list of perspective? What about, what about heaven's perspective of Christmas? Have you ever stopped to think about what it must have been like for the angels who have been with Jesus to see him stepping down from his throne and coming to, to become a person, to take on flesh? Can, can you, have you ever stopped to think about what they saw or what it was like for them to, to witness all of this? I mean, Christmas is really just kind of a, an act one of a narrative that's going to include Jesus going, undergoing this, this intense brutality, being nailed to, to a cross, being scourged, being beaten beyond recognition. And, and, and Christmas is really just setting the stage for that. And, and that's, what, that's what we have to keep in mind here. Um, from our perspective, you know, we, we see Christmas as a time to receive a bonus at work, right? You know, if, if we've been good at work, uh, to receive presents. I mean, you know, we do want to stimulate the economy, right? So, you know, everybody get out there and, and spend. Um, you know, we, we see it as a time to enjoy spending time with friends and with family. Uh, maybe, you know, stopping by the neighbors that you haven't said anything to all year and giving them a tin of cookies or something like that. Maybe singing a few Christmas carols just to put us in the Christmas spirit. Uh, maybe we'll watch the movie Christmas Story a few dozen times because there's one cable station that plays it 24 hours around the clock, and so you, you just kind of like keep it playing in the background. That's, that's kind of what we've done in the past a couple times. But that's what Christmas looks like to us from our perspective. That's what we want it to be, and, and that's what I, you know, I'd say that that's what we're, uh, we're comfortable with. Um, there's this unforgettable scene in the movie Talladega Nights uh, which is one of Will Ferrell's masterpieces. The guy is hilarious in this movie. Uh, but there's this one scene in which the main character, Ricky Bobby, um, played by Will Ferrell, he's, he's saying grace at the dinner table 
And some of you are laughing because you remember this scene. It's hilarious. It's the most obnoxious, if not blasphemous, prayer uh, that you'll ever hear. Uh, but he's continually addressing his prayer to Lord Baby Jesus. Lord Baby Jesus this. Lord Baby Jesus that. Lord Baby Jesus. And finally, uh, after addressing uh, the Lord this way several times, his wife interrupts his prayer and says, Hey, um, you know, sweetie, uh, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. Uh, isn't it a bit odd to be praying to a baby? And uh, so he responds by saying, look, I, I like Christmas Jesus the best, and I'm the one saying grace. So in other words, he's got the right to, to pray to, to Lord baby Jesus. Uh, and while this scene, um, this scene is, is a little bit obnoxious, if not blasphemous, um, or you know, at least offensive, the reality is that the majority of people in our culture like the idea of this cute little baby Jesus in a manger, but they're uncomfortable with his mission and what he would go on to do, what he was really sent here to do. So I actually think that this scene is, is kind of accurate in the sense that it's a, an accurate representation of the human perspective, the humanist perspective of, uh, of Christmas. But what about heaven's perspective? What about God's perspective? And this is actually something that we don't have to take a shot in the dark on. It's not something that, uh, you know, we need to turn to a scholar to, to give us an educated, be, uh, you know, best guess on. No, the Bible actually tells us exactly what heaven's perspective of Christmas is. Now, I, I know that, you know, when, when you read through the Bible, you see the, the birth narratives of Jesus being born. You find those in the books of, uh, of Matthew and Luke, right? But uh, really, the other gospel narratives don't say a whole lot about it. Luke and John don't say, a, or um, Mark and John don't say a whole lot about it, although uh, John does touch on it in really deep theological terms, saying that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. In other words, he's talking about Jesus being born, and those who were his own did not receive him. That's from John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. So John kind of touches on Jesus being born, but doesn't give us a, a really good perspective from, from God's perspective anyway. So the retelling of the Christmas narrative from heaven's perspective is actually found in, in the book of Revelation of all places. And I say of all places because it seems like a place that, that we wouldn't really expect to find it. Uh, the book of Revelation, of course, was written by the Apostle John, the same John who wrote the book of John, the Gospel of John, uh, while he was on exile or in exile on the island of Patmos. Uh, for being a Christian. He was sent there because he, he was a follower of Jesus. And the term revelation indicates that there's something being revealed, uh, and that's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's the final revelation. It's the revealing of uh, God's plans for humanity, for the end of the world. Uh, and that includes Jesus, who has interrupted John's prayers on the island of Patmos uh, to give him this vision of the final revealing of God's plans. And so thus much of this book is apocalyptic, uh, looking into the future, uh, looking throughout history like it's all happening in, in one shot, using signs, symbols, and imagery as a means of describing basically leading up to the end of the world uh, and the future second coming of the Lord Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, hopefully turn to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to see a flashback to Christmas, the birth of Christ, the first Christmas, uh, which happened about 90 years probably 
uh, about 90 years prior to the time that the book of Revelation was written. So here we read, and it might be up here, it might not be. I'm, I'm not counting on Larry today, Larry the computer today, to, to work for us. So, uh, so make sure that you've got your, your fingers in, in both, both places, uh, Matthew chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 12. Uh, verses 1 and 2 in Revelation chapter 12, we read, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Now, let me say that there are a lot of really well-educated opinions and and, and maybe guesses in a way uh, of who this woman is. And there's obviously a lot of symbolism here. I'm not going to go real deep into, into the symbolism here, talking about what the sun represents or the moon represents or anything like that. But she, she's clothed with the sun and the moon, uh, is under her feet. So she's got a crown um, on her head with 12 stars. So who is this? Who is this woman? Well, some people, including myself, would say that this is an image of Mary, um, which would seem to make the most sense since she's the one who's about to, uh, to give birth to Jesus. She's the one who's pregnant with Jesus. Uh, some would say that this is actually not a woman, but that instead this, is, this woman in this, in this narrative, in, in this vision, represents the nation of Israel. After all, um, you know, Israel was responsible for delivering, uh, for bringing forth the Messiah, the, the Savior of the world. And the 12 stars must represent something, right? It seems uh, obvious, or, or probable at least, that that would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and others would say that maybe this is Eve, that this, this woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet is, is a, an image of Eve. Uh, and that's possible because she was the, the mother of all of humanity in the sense that all of humanity can be traced back to her womb. Uh, so which is it? Is it, is it Mary? Uh, is it the, the nation of Israel? Or is it Eve? Uh, I'd say that we can't be 100% sure. I mean, I'm I'm sure that it is supposed to represent one of those three, or maybe it's supposed to represent all three simultaneously. All three would fit into the symbolism, um, but I'd say it's it's really hard to to figure with a degree with a high degree of certainty which one it is. Now, you might be asking yourself, uh, how do we know it's any of these three? How do we know it's not something else? Um, How do we know that the baby is referring to Jesus? Uh, and I just say, you know, bear with me here. We're going to get there uh, in, in just a moment. But let's continue with the text. Re- uh, Revelation uh, chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. There's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of simultaneous activity going on here. Uh, But let's first make note of the fact that this is the second sign um, that they're seeing in heaven of what's about to happen. The first was the woman, whether she's literal, whether it's literally a woman or whether it's symbolic of the nation of Israel or whatever else. Um, the second one here is the dragon. The second vision or the second sign here is uh, the dragon with seven heads, each with a, a diadem or, or a crown and ten horns. Uh, and it tells us that the dragon swept away a third of the stars in heaven. Now, one thing that we have to remember while we're reading this is that there's going to be some skipping around chronologically because this is being seen from heaven. 
Heaven is in eternity where there's not really a sequence of moments from one moment to the next. Because when you have an infinite line, there's really, you can't say plus one. You can't add one to something that's infinite. And time is infinite in eternity. So the sequence of events here seem to fall like boom, boom, boom. And maybe not, in, not necessarily in chronological order. So the first question, or the first thing we see here is that the dragon is standing before the woman about to devour her child. The next thing we might ask um, is, what does this dragon represent? Well, if you glance down to verse 9, if you have your Bibles open, look down at verse 9. It tells us exactly who that is. It's Satan. This is Satan. This, This dragon represents Satan. We don't have to guess on whether this is a literal dragon or not. It's not a literal dragon. The dragon represents Satan, the enemy of God, and that is literal. Um, In this picture, each of his heads would represent an earthly kingdom that Satan is ruling over. Uh, He's kind of a puppeteer over them, in a sense. Uh, So given what we know about the story of the birth of Christ, the dragon standing before the woman waiting to devour her child, I I think undoubtedly refers to King Herod. It's telling us that King Herod was under satanic influence, that King Herod was the puppet of Satan. And he was seeking to have Jesus killed because that's what Satan wanted. Satan wanted to devour the child. Now, when the Magi came to Jerusalem because they'd seen the star from the east, they went before Herod. They, they, they come to Herod, who's the ruler of this area, and he was troubled when the Magi told, uh, told him that they had come to see the king of the Jews. Remember, Herod is a ruler. He's feeling threatened. And so what does he want to do? He wants to do what a lot of politicians, maybe not in this country, but around the world, they'll do things like eliminate the competition. Get them out of the way. If not discredit them, uh, kill them. And that's what Herod is seeking to do. So Herod tells the Magi to report back to him when they find him so that he too, so that Herod too can go and worship Jesus. And here's what we read next in Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So while the angels are rejoicing about Jesus being born, the the shepherds are rejoicing about Jesus being born, the wise men are worshiping, Satan is waiting for his opportunity. He's waiting to put an end to all of this as swiftly and as easily as he possibly can. So it appears to be pretty clear that Herod is operating on behalf of none other than Satan himself, according to our text here in Revelation. Now, if you're still wondering how we know that the scenario being described here in the book of Revelation is the birth of Jesus, we're about to answer that question. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. And she, that is this woman that we've been talking about, and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, the book of Revelation, out of of all the books in the New Testament, has more names for Jesus than, than any other. In fact, it probably has more names for Jesus than any book since Isaiah. Isaiah had a lot of names for Jesus also. Uh, we find terms like the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth, uh, the conquering king. Um, 
These are all titles and descriptions of Jesus and, and telling us who he is, revealing different aspects of his character. Um, remember, the book of Revelation is, is a final revealing of God's plan for redemption. And to reveal all of that, he wants to show us all these characteristics of Jesus, giving us a, a really deep understanding of Jesus' character. And that's why Jesus has all these titles through the book of Revelation. And here we see that Jesus is being presented as the king who would ultimately defeat the dragon. Uh, we know that a rod was, uh, you know, it was a tool used by shepherds to manage the sheep. And the, actually the word that gets translated as rule here uh, is the same word in, in Greek that would get translated as uh, to shepherd. So you could translate it as uh, that he would shepherd all the nations with a rod of iron. And so um, that this king will shepherd with an iron rod gives us the idea that he means business. He's not playing around. I, I wouldn't want to mess with a shepherd if I was a sheep who has an iron rod. Uh, he means business. He's not only compassionate and caring, which a shepherd has to be, he's also firm and just. So the second half of this verse actually fast-forwards through all of Jesus' life. Like I said, things are happening just, it seems like, one after another because they're seeing this from eternity. And so the second half of this verse fast-forwards to the ascension of Jesus, which we find in the book of Acts, telling us that, uh, this is, that the king's throne is where Jesus' throne is. God's throne. That's where Jesus' throne is. And so hopefully at this point, hopefully it's clear as day that this could be nobody else. This, this description would fit nobody else except Jesus. And so John continues, writing in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, I think it's, it's pretty clear, given the comparison with Matthew's text, Matthew chapter 2, uh, that this is Joseph and Mary going down to Egypt. Uh, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we read, uh, Now when they had gone, behold, that's talking about the Magi, when the Magi had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Now for, for the next couple of verses here in Revelation chapter 12, John is going to tell us about the battles that are going on in the spiritual world, the spiritual realm between heaven's angels and these angels who fell from heaven with Satan, with Lucifer. Uh, they were kicked out of heaven for following Lucifer, basically. Lucifer wanted to exalt himself above God, and so the stars falling from the sky, those represent angels. About a third of the angels were, uh, were, were sent to earth, fell to the earth. Uh, remember also that while John has been skipping around a little bit here chronologically, uh, it's seeing this from heaven's perspective in eternity. So while we skipped uh, a lot of years into the future, um, in the future of Jesus' life there for a moment, we're actually going to skip right back to the Christmas scene. Look at what John writes next, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. This is John writing. He says, Then I, John, heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, or, or his Messiah, depending on what your translation is, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. So as soon as Jesus is born, 
This is all happening simultaneously in eternity, but on earth, we're talking about Jesus being born here. As soon as he's born, we see that there's this loud voice in heaven proclaiming that salvation has arrived on earth with the power and kingdom of God. And the reason? Because Satan was cast down on earth and he's been accusing the brethren. In other words, followers of Jesus. You and me. Everybody. Accusing us. Before God, day and night. In other words, Jesus came to earth in response to an accusation of sin. That's what he's accusing us of. Sin, evil, walking away from God's plans, doing something that God doesn't like. And so Jesus came down in response to sin. Salvation's here. Christmas morning, the first Christmas. Salvation is here. What does that mean? It means deliverance from the penalty and the persuasive power of of sin. The moment that Jesus was born, from heaven's perspective, it was as good as done. Christmas, the first Christmas. We don't celebrate that so much. We celebrate the coming of Christ, but do we celebrate the victory that is all assured? It's assured. The moment that Jesus is born, it's as good as done. Now, I want us to wrap our minds around this. This is the moment that salvation has arrived on earth. The moment when Christ was born. And not a moment sooner. Not a moment sooner. Humanity had existed for thousands and thousands of years at this point, and it's only at this point that salvation enters the scene. And, and this, is, this is the most beautiful thing about Christmas. See, for, for thousands of years, salvation hadn't been on the earth. It was possible for people to be saved by trusting in the promise of the coming Messiah, just like we're saved by trusting in the fulfillment of those promises. They, for, for the people before Jesus was born, they're saved by considering it as good as done, just as we are. But it's, it's at this point that we see the most beautiful thing about Christmas, and it's a truth that those who reject Jesus won't understand because you can't even begin to understand the glory of Christmas if you don't except the fact that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. Jesus had to come and do it. There is no other way. There's no salvation if there's no Savior. And the moment that the Savior is born, we see that He brings salvation. Salvation comes to earth. And so this voice in heaven continues, proclaiming victory upon the birth of, of Jesus, of this child. Uh, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. And they, that's referring back to the brethren, and they overcame him, the accuser, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So in this moment where Jesus is being born, Heaven is proclaiming victory. When Jesus was born, he not only brought salvation, but he also brought victory over the accuser of the brethren. He brought victory over Satan. Not only did Jesus render Satan a defeated adversary, but because of Jesus, that victory gets passed on to those who follow Jesus, those who are in Jesus. And we overcome him we over, overcome the accuser of the brethren because of the blood of the Lamb. And it's as good as done as soon 
as Jesus is born. Heaven announces this victory at the moment the first Christmas became a reality. Because Jesus came and brought the kingdom and the authority of God with him, the enemy of God is now working on borrowed time. Time that he doesn't really have. It's just a matter of time before Jesus comes back and finishes it off. But it's guaranteed at this point. We're assured that this world belongs to Jesus and not to the accuser of the brethren. Christmas is heaven's declaration of war, all-out war on sin and evil, rebellion against God, and it's a declaration of victory over the one who wants to remind us and God of all the times that we've messed up, that we've sinned, that we've done something that isn't according to God's plan. So let me ask you, have you ever thought about Christmas as an act of war before? Is that kind of weird? It's an act of war. It's, it's a declaration of war. Uh, Christmas and war, those, those two terms, don't seem to really fit together. That, that's not our perspective. No, that's heaven's perspective. Christmas is war. You know, we sing songs like Silent Night, and you know, we, we have this picture in our minds of this peaceful, serene birth. And it, it may have seemed peaceful on the surface, uh, but we know that uh, in, in the spiritual realm not from a human perspective, but in the spiritual realm, the angels are rejoicing and all hell is breaking loose in the demonic world. It's chaos. It's not a silent night for them. It may have been from a human perspective, but it's not in the spiritual realm. Christmas is God going deep into the middle of enemy territory to break the grip that sin has on our hearts. That's what Christmas is about from heaven's perspective. It's proof that God takes the issues of sin and redemption really, really seriously, that he doesn't mess around when it comes to those things. Eugene Peterson says this, this is not the nativity story we grew up with. I agree with that. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. In other words, it instigates evil. It provokes them. It, It stirs them up. As surely as the angels in heaven were rejoicing that first Christmas, Satan and the, the angels, the one-third one of the angels that fell with him from heaven, were terrified because they knew that their time of influence on the earth was about to be interrupted because Christmas is not only heaven's simultaneous declaration of war against and victory over the kingdom of darkness, but it was heaven's declaration that earth's rightful owner had returned to take back what was created for him and by him. And only by and for him. Now, I remember in, uh, in late 2001, uh, not long after the terrorist attacks, um, I, I was watching a football game. And I, I don't know if it was a Sunday afternoon or if it was a Monday or Thursday. You know, I, I don't remember what day of the week it was. But uh, during the game, the United States began its invasion of Afghanistan. And they announced it over the loudspeakers of this football game. And people were going... Bananas. I mean, people were, were cheering and screaming. and I mean, it, it was the most exciting thing. Uh, you know, it was more exciting than the football game for these people. You know, that, that was the loudest moment of the football game. And we have to realize that the excitement that we had when we were taking a stand against the war on terrorism pales in comparison to the excitement and the chaos that was going on in the spiritual realm. The reason that Herod wanted to kill Jesus and ended up killing every male child in the land who was two years old was because 
he, Herod, wasn't the rightful ruler of the land. Call it satanic influence, but when he heard about Jesus, he knew that he didn't have long. And so he's trying to eliminate the competition. Little did he know that he wasn't just dealing with the king of the Jews. He was dealing with the creator of the universe. He didn't have a chance. So what's Christmas from heaven's perspective? First of all, it's a declaration of war. All-out war on sin and evil. Number two, Christmas is heaven's declaration of victory over evil. And number three, Christmas is heaven's invitation to switch sides, to receive salvation. God's going to defeat evil once and for all someday, and he guaranteed it on Christmas. Christmas is God's guarantee that it's going to happen. And because of Christmas, we don't have to be swept away and separated from God for all of eternity when he finalizes his victory. We may not have realized it, but we were like people who were just drowning and dying, facing death. And Christmas is God throwing us a life preserver. Christmas gave us an opportunity to escape the eventual destruction of evil and be reconciled with God. It was an invitation to become citizens of the kingdom of God and leave as citizens, no longer be citizens of the kingdom of darkness. Christmas is a celebration of God giving us a choice in the matter to receive what he's offering. The lights, the trees, the ornaments, the wreaths, the candles, you know, these things all are symbolic of of things that are related to Christmas. And for those of us who really understand what Christmas is about from heaven's perspective, yeah, these things take on a lot more significance when we realize what heaven looked like or what Christmas looked like from heaven's perspective. For those who haven't accepted this invitation to receive salvation, they're missing the most beautiful part of Christmas. Now, I don't think... Here in Revelation, I don't think Satan being thrown out of heaven in this vision is there for anything other than just to let us know that from heaven's perspective, he's already defeated. His time is already up. We see all kinds of evil in the world today, and we might be wondering, God, where are you? When are you going to do something about all of this? But all of this, we have to remember, is being done on borrowed time. Satan's days are already numbered. So with that in mind, we see that Christmas means that we have the strength to, per- to persevere, to make it through any type of adversity that comes against us because of the blood of the Lamb. That's Christmas from heaven's perspective. The voice that announced victory in heaven said that it's through the blood of the Lamb that we stand boldly and faithfully against any and all adversity that stands contrary to the kingdom of God, even death. So Christmas looks a little bit different from heaven's perspective, doesn't it? Looking at it as war. From heaven's perspective, the king going into the middle of enemy territory to declare victory, planting the kingdom of God in the middle of the kingdom of darkness and claiming ownership of it and inviting humanity to receive salvation in him. Evil has been defeated. From heaven's perspective, it's done. That's what Christmas is really all about. Let's pray. God, I just pray that in this season, we remember what this is really all about, what Christmas is really all about.
We thank You, Lord, Lord, that You do take things like sin and rebellion very seriously. We thank You that You sent Your Son who created all things by Himself, for Himself, that You sent Him to be a reconciler, a mediator between us and You. We couldn't do it, God. We thank You that that's what Christmas is really all about. We thank You that the victory is as good as won. Help us to live with that perspective, to live with victory in mind, knowing that the enemy's time is up. He's on borrowed time. And in light of that, Lord, help us to live each moment for You. I know that You wouldn't want it any other way. Thank You for Christmas. Thank You for declaring war on sin. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus.